High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 High FM. I'm Rabbi Ari Kievman. And today I want to take you with me a little bit of a journey that one year ago I was privileged to make. And thanks to a generous philanthropist who visited our shul, it was a fully paid experience. And I was able to assist some other rabbis in the community also by getting them to join along in this trip to Kazakhstan. And while it was a physically exhausting trip, it was certainly an, a, a spiritually exhilarating three and a half day journey around the world, participating in the momentous observance of the yard site of the Rebbe's father, which takes place this coming Sunday night, Monday, Chaf Av, the 20th of Av. He was buried in Arway, Kazakhstan, in a city called Almaty, or Almata is the way it used to be called. And he was the father of the Rebbe. And I want to just share with you some of his teachings and insights and a little bit of a perspective on his life that I think everyone could really truly gain from. And considering his, his yard site, it's appropriate that we talk about it now as we approach the 20th of Av, <laughs> the month of Av. And it's actually this year, the 76th yard site, the anniversary of the passing of Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Schneerson. Now the name Schneerson, for most people, is probably quite familiar to you, right? The name of the surname of the Lubavitcher Rebbe and the name of the Hasidic dynasty of all the previous Chabad Rebbes. On this day, the Rebbe, throughout his years of leadership, since his father passed away, he would always mark it with a Farbrengen and, uh, you know, Hasidic gathering for the community where he would expound on the teachings of his father and his father's legacy. So that's what I want to do with you today is to share with you some of his teachings. A lot of people aren't familiar with Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson. Many people haven't heard of him, not familiar with him, but just to think that he's the father of the Rebbe. And I want to share with you as well something amazing about the donor, the philanthropist who sponsored my trip and the trip of hundreds of other rabbis for this special occasion. His name is Avi Shalson. On a side note, he came to visit us here in Santon two years ago with his family and was one of the most generous donors we've ever had visiting our community. He was very, very generous for our hospitality. Now, Avi tells me that he came one year, I think it was a good 20 years ago, to Kazakhstan to pay his respects to the Rebbe's father on his yard site. And he felt it was quite odd that the Rebbe himself on his yard site, hundreds of thousands of people flocked to his resting place. Yet on his father's yard site, out in far away Kazakhstan, Hardly anyone's there. He said maybe there were 40, 50 people who came to pay respects. And therefore, to honor the Rebbe and his father, this man dedicated a tremendous sum of his personal funds. 
and invited other philanthropists to join him in paying the respects. So considering that last year was the 75th yard site, he made a tremendous event. And while we were there, we basically delved into the teachings of this great rabbi who was the chief rabbi of Ukraine before the war. And I'm going to go through some of my notes to share with you some of the ideas that we learned during that time. I was there for literally less than 24 hours. So at my shul, I had the opportunity to go into the details of the trip. But today, I want to share with you some actual aspects and elements, a little bit of the bibliography, a little bit of the history of the Rebbe's father. He was born in 1878 and... His great-grandfather was the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek. Now, in 1902, he and his wife had their first child, who was later to become the Rebbe, who was named after the great-grandfather, the Tzemach Tzedek, also Menachem Mendel. What else is interesting is that the wife of Rabbi Menachem Mendel, the Tzemach Tzedek, was also Chayim Mushka, which is the same name as the Rebbe's wife, and the Rebbe married one of his cousins, so that's a separate story. Now, in 1909, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak was called to serve as the rabbi of the new shul in Yekaterinoslav, which is today known as the Nepopetrovsk. And the family moved there from, I'm not sure where they lived before, but he served as the rabbi in that city for 32 years. But the last 18 years was... He was the chief rabbi, but that's when things got tough because in 1917 is when there was the Bolshevik Revolution. And following that is when communism came to power and basically religion became forbidden. And that's when a lot of trouble began. Now, just to give you a little bit of history, you know, my name is Kievman and the capital of Ukraine is Kiev. So that's where my family comes from. My father was born in Russia in 1937 and went through, he experienced much of what communist life was like for the first decade of his life, escaping from communist regime, running away from the Nazis. It wasn't an easy life back then. And if you think of Yekaterinoslav, this city was in some ways considered the central city of Ukraine for everything that's related to Judaism. Jews from throughout the region would look to Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, who was the chief rabbi of the city, for their guidance. And he served during those difficult, tumultuous times. It was a period, you think about after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, when the Stalinist regime came to power, or before that, Lenin. And basically, atheism is, was was the culture, was the way of life. And if that wasn't your lifestyle, then you were in trouble, because it was so dangerous to be religious, and even more relate, dangerous to be a religious leader. My father described to me in his childhood how they had to observe the Jewish practices, basically clandestinely in secret. And Reb Levick was determined, and he was fearless. 
in his leadership of the community. He stood up to the Soviet authorities. He never wavered in his commitment for the Jewish community. And I'd like to share with you some of those insights of that time. Because the Rebbe himself oftentimes told stories about how his father stood up to the regime. For example, one of the stories the Rebbe related was how he used to supervise the one of the biggest matzah manufacturing companies in Russia or the former Soviet Union. And then when it was nationalized as a government company, they demanded that he continue to supervise. And he said the only way I could supervise is by having my mashkichim, my designated supervisors, you know, like the Bethden has supervisors within every place that that bears their symbol, whether it's food establishments, restaurants, or manufacturers. And there too, he would put a stamp on it only if he had his mashkichim, the supervisors, actually overseeing the manufacturing of the matzahs. They didn't like that idea. And to cut a long story short, it wasn't simple or easy, but he got his way. You know, on the one hand, you could easily find an excuse for a rabbi to certify it, even if he didn't get it his way, because after all, the Soviet Union, the Russian regime, they were tough cookies to deal with. And you know, they considered this sabotage, taking advantage of the government by demanding that there be supervisors, which obviously will come at a cost of peril. You could have found any excuse. Punishment that could have cost his life and actually ultimately did cost his life. They could have sent him off to the gulag and they ultimately did and that's why he dies in Kazakhstan all alone. But he was not intimidated because when Jewish principles were at stake, it is the responsibility of a leader of the great rabbis to stand up and to do what's right. This isn't what, who was the famous comedian who said, I've got my principles and if you don't like them, I have other ones. Uh Uh-uh. He stood by his guns. He stood by his principles. And he didn't sway in Jewish values. He was willing to lay down his life for the sake of Jews and Judaism. And that was the way he did things. On one occasion, the Soviets organized a rabbinic conference in Kharkov. Kharkov today is another prominent city of Jewish life in Ukraine. Today, one of my cousins, Rabbi Levi Reitzis, is one of the distinguished rabbis there. But back then, it wasn't so easy. And Rabbi Levi Yitzchak was participating in this conference. Remember, this is during communist era, the height of it. And during his stay, Rabbi Nachum Goldschmidt, who is the great-grandfather of my nephews and nieces, my brother-in-law, he was a young man from your Katrina's love, who knew the Rebbe, who knew the Rebbe's father. And he was a childhood friend of the Rebbe. And he was studying at the yeshiva there in Kharkov. So he visited Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, who was there for the conference at the time. And Rabbi Levi Yitzchak told him that the government was persecuting Jews, was persecuting the rabbis, anyone who was practicing any semblance of religious life. And now they wanted him to sign some kind of document that would say 
that there's freedom of religion so that the world wouldn't condemn them. That's the irony. And he was a little bit confused, uncertain what he should do. Because on the one hand, if he would sign this statement, perhaps, maybe, the government would lighten up its grip on the Jews. And maybe things would become a little bit easier. But then the rest of the world would stop pressuring them to stop the persecutions. And if they don't really, if this is just a ploy then they're just going to suffer more and there won't even be any external pressure. So he wasn't sure what to do. And he was analyzing this and discussing it with Rabbi Goldschmidt and thinking of the pros and cons of whether to sign this document or not. You could think, you know, the benefits, the pros, the cons, the what would be the right thing if it would harm the community or if it would be beneficial to them. And at one point he stood up and he spoke very strongly and he said, no. I'm not going to sign this. How can I sign? Even if they threaten my life, he said, I'm not going to sign this. And he made up his mind, right? He was presented with two horrible options. And he decided to go with the truth that they were being persecuted because that was the reality. Even if they threatened his life, if he wouldn't sign this document. And much later on, Rabbi Goldschmidt said that you know, he saw the inner strength of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, that no intimidation could dissuade him from doing what's right. That was the moral fortitude, the inner resolve of this great man. And the Rebbe himself spoke about this. And he said that his father did not sign the statement and he turned down the demands of the Soviet Union that wanted to make themselves look better to the world. But who knew what the consequences would be? And he himself paid for it very much with his own life. There are so many stories about how, about his bravery and the courage that he had for the sake of Judaism. And sadly though, the Jewish community needed the leadership of his moral and spiritual fabric that he was, but he was imprisoned for his crimes. And I'm gonna share with you a little bit about that experience when we'll be right back. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. And welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on Chai FM. What a beautiful day it is today. And we're gearing up for the anniversary, the yard site of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson. And so I was sharing with you some stories of his life. And I would also like to share with you some insights of his teachings that I learned last year at his gravesite. And I think that there's a lot that one could learn from just his personality because as a leader, as a teacher, as a thinker, he stood up for his communities. He had the, the, the morals, the ethics to do what's right, not what was popular. And that really cost him a lot of his, a lot for his personal life. And that's why he was sent off to this faraway place. Let me just share with you some insights because his scholarly teachings, the, his correspondence, because a lot of his writings were only discovered long after he passed away. And very interesting how he even procured ink. His wife would make from ink while he was exiled in 
Kazakhstan out of leaves. So they had that element of just making things work. <laughs> I think it's very important for us these days when we're not exactly exiled and under torture and persecution, but for the benefit of our community, perhaps we are somewhat limited so that we can keep each other safe and well. So we are lucky to have those writings that were discovered much later. And let me just share with you one of the insights. You know, there are four general methods of Torah learning, and they're known as pardus. Pardus is the orchard. Torah is like an orchard. You go through it. But the word pardus itself is an acronym of four dimensions, four aspects of Torah study. The word pardus spelled peish, pei reish dalid samach. So it's an acronym for the words pshat, remez, Drush and Sod. Pshat is the literal, simple meaning of the text. When you read a verse of Torah, there's a simple understanding of the verse, what the verse itself means. And although it's often anything but simple, it refers to the plain meaning of the words of the Torah, the plain meaning of the verse as we read it and understand it. The second aspect, the Reish, is a Remez. Remez is more symbolic. And that's referring to the allusions that we learn from reading between the lines, right? Using the tools such as Gematria, which is the numerical value of the letters, or the acronyms that are formed by various words, right? And examples, this very word, Pardas, is an acronym for these four words, Pshat, Remez, Dush, and Sod. So that is Remez, that's more symbolic. The third level is drush. What's drush? They call it uh, homiletics. It's in- interpretive meanings, right? This is interpretations that are not explicit in the text. This is getting much deeper. And you know, before we begin davening each morning, we read Rabbi Yishmael Omer, the 13 principles by which the Torah is derived, how we understand the laws, how each thing is deduced. And finally, the last aspect is more mystical, and that is called Sod, which means the secrets. Right? Here, we're using the Kabbalistic teachings, which really uncover a much deeper, mystical, esoteric meaning of the text. And very important for us, because all four are important components of understanding. Now, you can't get to the second, third, or fourth without understanding the first. So as we know, you have to first comprehend a verse as it's simply understood. And only then can you get into the deeper side of it. So each of these facets of study is actually a complete area. It's a whole dimension of its own. Each one, there are people who spend a lot of time studying and reviewing and analyzing each aspect on its own. Now, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, he had a very interesting way of teaching because he was very mystical and studied a lot of the symbolism and fascinated by Torah language, by these deep concepts, he actually would delve into all aspects of Torah. So he would look at the composition of the verse and look at the, from the literal understanding and meaning, get much deeper into the syntax, into the numerology, into the mysticism, and uncover the deeper layers of meaning behind each verse. And sometimes it's beyond my comprehension. I can't claim to be, I'm under 40, you know, 40 is the years of when one could start studying Kabbalah because you have a deeper, truer understanding of it. But 
when you go through his teachings, you see how he would uncover hidden codes by weaving seamless tapestries between seemingly disconnected concepts and disjointed texts and somehow bringing them all together. So let me share with you one or two examples of his teachings that you could just get an appreciation of the great scholarly ideas that he taught. And after all, that's what's appropriate to do on one's yard site is to look at his life accomplishment and no doubt his Torah teachings. As I mentioned in last week, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai, when he was granted his wishes by Vespasian, who was to become the emperor of Rome and asked him what he would like. He didn't ask for a temple because perhaps Rabbi Yochanan realized it's not temples that will preserve the continuity of Jewish life. But rather he said, Ten li yavna give me yavna and its scholars because it is through the teachings of the Torah, through its scholarly wisdom, by us delving into it. And of course, the purpose of it all is to, not just to study, but to do. And that's what we learned from Rabbi Levi Yitzchak here because he really taught us a lot. And when we got out that the KGB, you know, the old Soviet Union's secret police force, which were quite murderous in their own ways. And on a personal note, my grandmother was a secret double agent. She was very much helping the Hasidim. She came from a Hasidic family going all the way up to the time of the Alter Rebbe. And my grandmother was a person, she just passed away in 2004, close to 92 years of age. And she shared with me one of her most daunting experiences, and this must have been around 1941, when she actually worked for the KGB, but really she was working for Chabad. And she, as a working for the KGB, she just had a secretarial job, but she was often fishing for information and to see what's going on. And one day she saw a Hasidic looking man, looked like a rabbi, and he was actually known to the community as a very suspicious person. His name was Itcha David, or David Itcha. I'm already forgetting, you know, she passed away 16 years ago. She told me the story then, long before that she told it to me. But David Itcha, this fellow was called a muster. He was an informer, although he looked the part. He dressed the part as looking like a chassid. He actually was working for the KGB, finding out who were those undercover rabbis and who were the shachtim which her father was one of the shachtim he was a ritual slaughterer providing kosher meat for the community of moscow and who was teaching and who was where was the mikvah and you know they they really couldn't figure it out because the hasidim were really doing a good job at keeping it at some point around then in the heart of moscow and people were able to observe yiddishkeit and to continue persevering with their religious Jewish practices. So one day he came in with an extensive list of all the people who were involved in this underground network. And when my grandmother glanced at the list, you know, in those days, she couldn't sneak out her phone and take a picture. She memorized the names. I think 30-something names of various prominent Hasidim, rabbis, rebbitsons, people who were involved. And she went door to door that day, knocking on all these people's homes and telling them their lives are in danger. They're on their tail. Some of them listened, 
left everything behind and moved on and their lives were saved. Others stayed behind and we don't know whatever happened to them. As a child growing up in Brooklyn, some people, elder Hasidim, old people, would tell me, your grandmother saved my life back in 1941. And of course, they also left and they moved on to another place in Uzbekistan, in a place called Samarkand, where they stayed for the next couple of years until the war was over and continued on their way to Israel on the Exodus ship. But of course, there was a lot in between getting out of Russia, going through Germany, through Poland first and Czechoslovakia. And it was a long, treacherous trip. And even getting to Israel. They were turned away by the British, but that's a separate story for a different time. So stay tuned and listen in and we'll share with you different interesting aspects. But back to Reb Levi Yitzchak. He was, he was leading the community throughout this very difficult time as rabbi leader and the KGB was getting ready, preparing to arrest him. And some of his friends visited him in secret and he shared with them a teaching that in a sense was probably his departing message to them. And it's a little bit deep. I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible for the purpose of this broadcast. And let me just share with you what he said. What's the first letter of the Torah? We know the Torah starts off with the word Bereshit, right? In the beginning. It's a base. What's the last letter of the Torah? Le'ene kol Yisrael. It's Alamed. Right, the last letter of Israel. So, what do the letters Bez and Lamed spell? Two words, right? Either Lev or Baal. You got both words there. Bez and Lamed is Baal. Lamed and Bez is Lev. What's Lev? Lev means heart. Baal means don't. Said Rabbi Levi Yitzchak. What does this mean? We have to follow the Torah with all our Lev, with all our heart. But to do so. He said, we also have to practice Baal, restraint. Now, this is something really, on the one end, deep, but at the same time, it's a very practical and important message that he was trying to convey. He said to them, his message was, that if you want to serve God with all your life, with all your heart, then Baal, there's something you should not do. We know the Torah tells us, we read it in the Parsha last week, that we have to be careful to do what God says, what God tells us. A person should not digress, should not veer in either direction, not right or left. So Rabbi Levi Yitzchak suggested that the first and last letters of the Torah are actually connected with this phrase. Baal, don't look to the right or to the left. At the letters to the right of the Bays and Lamed, or to the letters to the left of Bays and Lamed. Look only at the letters Bays and Lamed. Let me explain. In order, if you look at the, the written order of the Hebrew alphabet, right? The Aleph Bays. The letter to the right of the Bays is what? That's right, it's Aleph, right? Okay, of course, easy. And the letter to the right of the Lamed is what? Chaf. Aleph and Chaf spell the word Ach. What does Ach mean? However. Now let's look to the letters that are on the left side of the Bays and the Lamed. What's the letter to the left of the Bays? Aleph, Bays, Gimel. Very good. The letter to the left of the Lamed is what? Mem. So together, what does that spell the word? Gam. What does Gam mean? Also in addition. 
So here was Rebbe Levi Yitzchak's message. If you want to be a complete Jew and serve God with all your heart, as we say the word lev, right? All you need to do is to remember the secret code of the first and last letters of the Torah. The secret code is, follow the Torah's rules meticulously. So let's look at the word bal. Don't turn to the right of your meticulous observance. To the right of Bayes and Lamed, which spells the word ach. However, which is like, you know, an exclusionary clause. For example, a person might say, well, under ordinary circumstances, um, I would never go to work on Yom Kippur. And I have a separate story to share with you about my grandmother, how she got away from working Yom Kippur in the 1920s as a 16-year-old girl. But stay tuned closer to Yom Kippur time and I'll share that story. Ach, look at that word. What's the letters on the right of Beis and Lamed? Ach, Aleph and Chaf. You see here, it seems under the Soviet Union, ah, under these harsh, difficult conditions, I might just have to. So he says, no, the message is Baal. Don't do that. Don't turn to the right and detract from the Torah's rules. And similarly, don't turn to the left. What's the left of Beis Alamad we said a moment ago? Gam. The letters Gimel Amem. In addition, Right? This would be the mistake of saying, Gum, I'll add to the Torah's restrictions. The Torah, for example, forbids working on Shabbos, so uh, I won't work on Friday either. No, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Torah. Just as it's wrong to diminish, to eliminate one of God's commandments, it's also wrong to create a new commandment in God's name. So if Baal, if you refuse to stray from uh, from from the Baal, to right or to left, to create your ach or gam. Then what? Then live. Then you will serve God with a perfect faith, with a complete heart. And that is one of his profound teachings that he left his chassidim with before he was taken into custody, taken to Kazakhstan. And we'll be right back where I'll share with you some more insights and teachings from his legacy. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Rabbi Ari Kiedman. It's great to be with you here on this wonderful, beautiful afternoon. As we get ready for Chaf Menachem Av, the 20th of Av, which is the yard site of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, 76 years since his passing in 1944 in far away Kazakhstan. I tell you it's far away because I traveled there and we spent more time on the plane getting there and back than actually there. But as we approach his yard site, I'd like to share with you some more of his teachings and legacy that shaped his son, who went on to change the entire world, his son being the Rebbe himself. And let me share with you one other teaching of Rebbe Levi Yitzchak in our remaining time. And it's a little bit more complex than the previous one. I hope you got the message there. But I think it's... It's something that gives us an idea of how his teachings would flow seamlessly between the literal, the symbolic, the interpretive, and the mystical, as I was explaining the idea of Pshat Remez Drush and Sod before. But to keep it simple, I'm going to try to explain everything. And there was a chamber in the Beis Hamikdash, in the Holy Temple, in which the high priests would quarantine annually for seven days before Yom Kippur. And during this time... So if you're thinking 
you're quarantining now yourself, perhaps. Well, guess what? The Kohen Gadol, you have good company. The Kohen Gadol would do it too before Yom Kippur to prepare himself mentally and spiritually for this holiest day, which is in about seven weeks' time. Now, what was the name of that room? It had two names. One was called Lishkas Ha'etz, the wooden chamber, because it had wooden paneling. And it had another name that the sages gave it at a later point, and that was called Lishkas Palhedrin or Parhedrin, depending which version of the Talmud you're using, which is actually a Greek word that means assessors. And that was referring to the tax collectors who were appointed. Actually, it was an annual position, an appointment each year. And the reason, very simply, for being an annual appointment was to avoid any corruption. You don't want to get too close with the tax assessor, or that's where corruption comes in. So it was a position that was only appointed annually. And this is basically the room where the Kain Gadol, the high priest, would quarantine for the week before Yom Kippur. Now, Rashi, foremost commentator of the Torah, provides some context here. You see, we know the story of Hanukkah, Yehuda the Maccabee, great hero. He established the Hashmanaim royal dynasty. You know, today the Hasmonean school in the UK is named for the Hashmanaim, or the Maccabees as well, right? So, again, Yehuda and his brothers, they were very righteous. But sadly, their descendants were actually corrupt, and they took to auctioning off the high priesthood for the highest bid. So it became a corrupt position instead of being the holy position that it once was. If you want to go further into history, they sort of what led to the destruction of the temple because of two Hasmonean brothers who were fighting for the position of leadership of the Jewish people. And one his name was Hercules. You see, they even changed their names to become more Greek-sounding. And the other one was Aristobulus. So it's a very sad story of our history of where it led to. But certainly they started off pious and righteous. But as they say that authority, what is it that leads to corruption and absolute? I'm already forgetting that expression. But the point is that it was a corrupt position. The high priesthood was basically sold off to the highest bidder. Now, the this new breed of the high priests were not appointed for their piety, but for their wealth. So this, you know, consequently, people unworthy of the high priesthood assume the office. And we know, the Talmud tells us, that if they weren't deserving of this position, then they wouldn't survive Yom Kippur. Because, you know, they would suffer immediate death if they weren't worthy. So there was a, there was a period in time when actually every year, it would be a new kind of God during this time of corruption, where people who weren't worthy were taking the position, which was very similar to like the tax collectors. And maybe that's why the room got its name called Lishkas Parhedrin, like the assessors, because this is where the Kohen Gadol, who wouldn't necessarily survive the next Yom Kippur, was positioned. Now, on the face of it, we understand why it's called the wooden chamber because it was made out of wood and Lishkas Parhedrin because of the unfortunate reality of that time. But Reb Levi Yitzchak, he took it a step further.
he probed deeper and he uncovered the mystical links between those two names, between the names of Lishkas Ha'etz, the uh, wood chamber, and at the same time, why I was called Parhedrin, related to the tax assessors. And let me read it to you in his words, because it's quite fascinating. He said that Eitz Moira ala yamin. Trees represent long life. How do we know? Well, it says, ami. The words of the prophet Isaiah, like the days of a tree, so are the days of my people. So long as the high priests were righteous and enjoyed longevity, it was called the wooden chamber because they were worthy of long life. But afterwards, he explains, when the high priests were not righteous and they didn't enjoy longevity, then it was called parhedron. The name is comprised of three words. Besides for meaning assessor, as I gave you Rashi's explanation. The word parhedron could be broken into three words. Par, har, and din. Par means crumbling. Har is a mountain. And din is judgment. And all of these allude to the severity and divine judgment. So let's try to unpack and analyze this. On the one hand, longevity is a product of God's kindness. The chamber was paneled with wood which alluded to the durability, to the longevity of a tree. But when the high priests became corrupt and God responded with severity and justice, then they changed the name to Lishkas Parhedrin, which besides for meaning the room that's associated with the name of the tax assessors that only served in their position for one year, like these high priests had their position for just a year, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak actually broke it down further and gave us another understanding. And let's just analyze it. The word par, as I explained, is related to the word pirud. It means separated. Severity divides and disintegrates. You think about what a faribal does. Keeps people apart from each other. Well, that was one aspect here. The word har is a mountain. What's a mountain? It's hard. It's, it doesn't move. Mountain stuck in its place. And din is judgment. God's judgment was harsh and unmoving. And that's why the high priests did not last. They didn't survive. It was a corrupted position. Now, why would the sages give such a negative name to this position? So, on the surface, Rebbelevich's teaching has much greater depth that I want. I just want to share with you something that the Rebbe expounded on his father's teaching that he actually shared with us a fascinating insight about these two names that refer to the position, to the roles of the high priest. On the one hand, Lishkas Ha'etz, the wood. Wood, which we said is longevity. On the other hand, Parhedrin, which as we saw the word Parhedrin, it's about judgment. And the Rebbe explained that the tree's sturdy longevity alludes to the uninterrupted progress of the righteous. When the Kohanim Gedolim were righteous, you know what, Tzaddik is an unblemished individual. Someone whose devotion to God is a straight line of continual ascent, a journey of constant growth and achievement. 
And there are many righteous men and women who personify that. And they're really an inspiration. So if you look at the Lishkas Ha'etz, the wood chamber, that alludes to the high priest's responsibility to be righteous and to inspire piety. But there's another responsibility in the role of leadership as well. And that is the other name, Lishkas Parhedrin, which is, sounds a little bit more complicated, right? But that is to support the journey of a person who makes mistakes. And yes, those later Kohanim Gedolim, perhaps they were corrupted. But there's a message here. Because those who stray from the proper path, those who perhaps find setbacks and shortcomings, as most human beings, if we look at ourselves, we all do. We have our challenges and struggles. But this name symbolized the idea of helping everyone who made mistakes find their way back to return to become a better person, to move forward in the spiritual journey. Because about Shiva, a person who changes, we don't define ourselves, you know, we make mistakes. Right? You know that song I like to sing from the ninth, I get knocked down, but I get up again. Failure is not getting knocked down, failure is staying down. We can't define ourselves by our shortcomings, by our struggles, by those things that knock us down. We have to move forward. And that, I think, is the other side of this message that Rabbi Levi Yitzchak was teaching us. We have to break from our past, from our mistakes, and we become better people. So by disavowing our previous self, by by working on improving ourselves, by becoming better people, that I'm not the same as yesterday, I'm a better person today. And I think there's a tremendous connection here that Rebbe Levi Yitzchak was teaching us. Because the purpose of a high priest was to support the Baal Tshuva, the person who's making that effort to change, to become a better person. And that's symbolized by the second name, Lishkas Parhedrin. The Parhedrin officers, those tax collectors, right? They didn't have a tenure. After a year, their appointment would expire. The next appointee was a different person. And this prevented whatever corruption creeping into the tax collections. And this brings us back to those three elements of the name Parhedron. Par, which means separateness, the division. Har, mountain, and din, judgment. These refer to that, that the par is that self-restraint, holding back from capitulating again to our negative character traits. The second part, Har, is the mountain that doesn't move. We sometimes have to have that strictness with ourselves. And Din is the judgment. All are parts of the process of Teshuva. So we have Par, separateness. What we have to do is practice self-restraint, set distinctions between what's right and wrong in our lives. The Har, the mountain, Right? The mountain is unmovable. It stays in its place. We have to resolve not to go back to our faults and mistakes. And if we do, not to tell us it's okay. Right? You fail in your, in your diet, say, okay, I give up. No. And the same thing is in our spiritual diet and our personal growth. We want to grow and change. And finally, Dean is judgment. What happens? Judge our past behavior honestly. Be accountable to our mistakes. And thereby, we could 
do teshuva and become a better person. And I think this is a really deep teaching from Rav Levi Yitzchak about what the role of the high priest, of a leader is. That on the one hand, it is demonstrating piety, righteousness, like the lishkasa eats, like the tree, but at the same time, to inspire change, to influence one, to become better in their life. And I think this is something that he inspired and taught. You think about that life. I'll conclude with one last story about how there was a KGB agent who lived upstairs from him. His name was Chaim. And once Reb Levi Yitzchak was officiating a wedding, according to Jewish law, which was illegal at the time. He couldn't practice Jewish religion. And yet he did so in his home. And he needed a minion for the wedding. There were nine men. Who are they going to call to be number 10? And Rabbi Levi called Chaim from upstairs. And when he came, he said, me, the KGB agent? And the Rebbe looked at him. If that's the way it is, so be it. But you're a Jew and you could be part of our minion. And this man was changed from that moment on because he realized that he wasn't being judged for his conduct, but rather Rabbi Levi cherished him for who he was as a fellow Jew. And sadly, after the Rebbe was arrested, and uh, as I mentioned, he passed away many, uh, you know, in 1944 in Yekaterinoslav. And it appeared like the communist swan and he was gone because he passed away and his son took over in America. The Rebbe, long story how he survived escaping from Berlin to Paris and from Paris to Nice to Vichy and then from Vichy to Nice and finally making it to the United States on one of the last boats leaving Europe in 1941. And the Rebbe succeeded, the previous Rebbe became the leader of Chabad in 1951. And the Rebbe continued that work in Russia and ensured that Jewish life, not just in Russia, all over the world, but particularly in the former Soviet Union, because that's where he came from, and the Chabad Underground Network never stopped. And Yiddishkeit continued there. You could watch a great video on YouTube or on our Chabad South Africa Facebook page, an interview with Rabbi Beryl Lazar about what it was like being a Chabad rabbi in Russia during the communist regime, towards the end of it in the 1980s, and then becoming open and official chief rabbi of the country. And he watched that video of 35 years of leadership in Russia. And I'd just like to conclude with sharing with you, if you go today to Dnepropetrovsk, Dnepropetrovsk is the former city of Yekaterinoslav, that's the city where Rabbi Levi Yitzchak was the chief rabbi. And what's interesting is, today, the largest Jewish center in Europe, if I'm not mistaken, maybe even in the world, is there in Dnepropetrovsk, in this building called the Menorah Center. It's a giant building, and it has hospitality suites, and it has residences, and it has grand banquet halls, and, and a humongous shul, an activity center. It is a bustling place of Jewish life, named for Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, who was the chief rabbi of that city. And if you go to the top of that building, you could look down, and you will see the jail cell where Rablevi Yitzchak, when he was arrested, where he was incarcerated. And what's interesting is that that place today looks decrepit. It looks really outdated, gone, you know, totally taken, uh, a, a, a totally derelict. 
And I think that's the finest postscript of the life of Rabbi Yitzchak. His life did not end when he passed away because his son, the Rebbe, continued. And today, Yiddishkeit is prospering there and everywhere in the world, whereas communism and the buildings that represented it are somewhat of a history and gone. And all I would like to say for all of us is that we should merit the ultimate Jewish renaissance where indeed everyone will cherish and appreciate what really counts and matters. And may the merit of Rabbi Yitzchak Schneerson bring us blessing for all of us. And please God, I'll share with you more of his teachings and insights another time. For now, wish you all a pleasant Shabbos. Seize every moment. Carpe diem.